like the piano part in that song. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> it's just, it gets me going. I like that song. I'd never heard it before. You guys got me sweating now. I had a little bit of a malfunction with my microphone. Anytime the nerves come on, it's not even really that hot in here, but there it is. So we'll move on to our next song is going to be number 431 in your hymnal. And the words again will be up on the board. Shine, Jesus, shine. All right. How is everybody tonight? Everybody good? Making sure I'm on. I'm good. All right. Tonight, in the next several nights, I'm going to be down here. Because I noticed this morning when I got up on stage, I looked out and no one was right here near the front. And I went, oh, my teacher side of me freaked out. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> that I, I'm always like, OK, I'm losing everybody back there. So so camera fella. I apologize because I'm I'm a walker. Okay, so uh, it's just what I do. I can't stand still. It's uh, it's one of those things that I have. It is a privilege again to be with you tonight. It is a privilege to be able to come anytime we are invited to come and share this book. I love this book. It is life. When in Timothy it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, my, my worldview goes back to the garden when he created man and he breathed life into him. That's where my worldview goes. So tonight, we start a two-part series. <laughs> we will continue it tomorrow night. It, it is all about the first seven days. Genesis chapter 1 tonight. See, I find that a lot of us have studied creation. We have this grand idea about how he did it. Sometimes what we think we've studied before may not be what's actually written in here. Because we have, as I shared this morning, we've studied it maybe as a story and not as a historical event. That actually took place. And so we've, we've maybe glossed over some details that are really, really important for us to see and to understand. So tonight, as we get ready to get into Genesis, I need you to join me. I need you to join me in Colossians. Because Colossians, um, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is in the, in the middle of a very pagan society. Hello? I mean, his letters, his letters, his prison epistles that we call them, that he's writing to these churches that, he, that, he's, that he's been to and that he's taught and he's preached. And, he, and, he, and so he writes these letters that are to encourage them in their faith. And there are many parts of it that very much encourage me in my study of Genesis. And how important Genesis is. We'll study through some of the different passages this week. But, but tonight I want you to be in, in chapter 2 with me as we start in Colossians. 
There's, a, there's a, an interesting little verse here that I think I've read, I don't know how many times, for different reasons. And, and, and one time I was reading through it, and, and it just, it, it, the Lord like slammed me. That this very much applies to this evolution creation thing. In a way that I'd never seen before. And so I, I want to start tonight with this verse. Verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Colossians. It says this. See to it that no one takes you captive. Some of your translations may say enslaved. Um, the word is very much bondage. It's, it's taking, taking control of your life. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on who? Christ. An evolutionary worldview masquerades a lot as science. In our vocabulary, in our vocabulary, if the word science comes out today in, the, in, the, in just general understanding, it could be superimposed with the word evolution. That's how much, that's how much those two are, are now interchangeable. So in, in some of our worldviews, we'll hear science and we will think of the process of evolution. But see, as I mentioned this morning, worldview has a lot to do with it. In that passage in Colossians, it says, don't be enslaved by, by hollow and deceptive philosophies, a.k.a. worldviews. Worldviews that don't have anything to do with with Christ. They have everything to do with what? What were the two things there? Elements of the world. There's some translations that will translate the Greek there. Elements of the earth could even be taken as as in don't get caught up in things that start with the very compounds of the earth. Hello? <laughs> as much as I do not I do not believe that the apostle Paul was, had this understanding that there is this going to be this theory called evolution that's going to come down the pipe someday. Who, again, was guiding his hand as he was writing that passage? See, we have to remember that God breathed it all, not just parts of it. So I do, when I begin teaching on things, I again will share with you again tonight, this is absolute truth. All of it. I don't care what topic I'm going to, I'm going to teach or, or, or preach on. That is my starting point. Okay? So tonight's message about creation. See, how we read the first chapter in this book affects how we see things around us, affects our worldview. Whether you see on this image here someone you might be related to. Now, some of you may be saying, oh, I got that uncle, right? Everybody's got that uncle. If you don't think you do... You could be that uncle. Okay? I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out this evening. I'll just let you chew on that a little. See, I, 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 was, 
I was at the Oklahoma City Zoo several years ago, and I, and I had my telephoto lens and my camera, and, and our silverback gorilla was sitting, I can never remember his name. I really need to memorize his name. I talk about him all the time. And um, he's sitting up majestically on this rock, and he's, he's having some lunch, and, and so I'm a ways away, and so I zoom in with my telephoto lens and get a sh- decent shot of him, I think, personally, okay? It wasn't until you get home, you know, on the back of your, your camera lens, you can only see so much from that little, yeah. And then when you get home, you, 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 get, it, you get it on your computer, and you realize he's eating his poopy. You know, yeah, it's just a majestic animal up there on there. I'm like, oh, that's gross. The silverback gorilla is a wonderfully designed creature. Does marvelous things. Does what he's designed to do. He does it really, really well. But see, some, maybe even in here tonight, have been taught that we share a common ancestor with him. So somewhere down the family tree, we branched off of a common ancestor. Listen very closely to me, church. We'll go over this tomorrow night because we're not going to get to day six tonight. That is tomorrow night. So I'm precursoring everything for tomorrow night. If you are a follower of Christ and you have used the argument that says, well, if, if we came from monkeys, how come we still have monkeys? Please throw that out of your thought process. Because if you've tried to use that with somebody that has an evolutionary worldview, they've probably laughed at you. Because what that immediately tells them is, you haven't bothered to study what they believe. And if you haven't studied what they believe, why should they study what you believe? Hello? They don't believe that monkeys turned into us. That is not the evolutionary worldview. The evolutionary worldview says that back in time... The two branches, our branch over here, less hair, bigger brained, walking upright, and the primate branch on the family tree of primates, all connected down here with a common ancestor that we branched from. So it's not this, it's this. Does everybody understand the difference? That's a, that's a big difference. So how we see the things around us how we see a fetus is directly impacted by how we understand this book. Were we knit together in our mother's womb as Psalm 139 says or are we just a piece of flesh? without his image. See, how we understand the first chapter and whose image we were made in drastically impacts everything. So as much as we may think that this first chapter of Genesis doesn't apply today, it does, with all that it is. So, so there's two worldviews out there. There's two. Some people will, will, will want to look at me and talk to me about well there's more than two choices 
there may be two more than two choices but I'm here to tell you if it if it doesn't fit with the way that it's shared in here it's lumped in the other group there's two choices that's how I see it I mean you, you can either ride with it or not that's it see on this screen here you have two orders of things the top is the order in which we're going to study through it the next two nights, the way that it is written. The bottom is an evolutionary understanding of how everything got here. Notice there's a vast difference in the order of things. See, there are those that want to come and talk to me and say, well, Matt, couldn't, couldn't the Lord have used, don't you think the Lord could have used evolution to get us to here? And I say, well, he could have, he could have done whatever he wanted to do. He is God. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. But that's not what he said he did. And it doesn't line up with the order in which he said he did either. You can clearly see that. So, even though the, the, sitting, the sitting pope in, in the Catholic Church has endorsed theistic evolution, meaning that God used the evolutionary process to get us to where we are today. I don't care. I, I don't care if there are other ministries out there that try to promote an idea that says there's vast amounts of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, of which in the Hebrew, which is a run-on sentence, there is zero time there. I, I don't care if there's other ministries out there that have, that have the ear and the voice of prominent television ministries and family ministries that, that if I said the family ministry, you would all know them immediately, have, have ministries, creation ministries, and I use that term very loosely in my worldview, that say, well, those days we're about to study, they're not really days. They were epic periods of time, and they overlapped a lot. And, and so the evolutionary time frame is fine with that first week. I'm here to tell you, anytime you have anything in your worldview, and, and listen, church your size, we got lots of worldviews. I'm just here, I, I've been doing this long enough. There's lots of worldviews sitting in here. And, and I, need you to, I need you to just, just listen for, for the, the remaining of this hour. Because you may hear something you've never heard before. I, I, I pray that often. Lord, somehow just use me. To say, say that word that, that, that whoever it is that, that, you, that you've brought here, Lord, tonight, that they will hear that. Because this book is very clear about what he said he did when. It, and, and I can't be any more simple than that. And any time, any time we have any other idea in our worldview, I have to ask you this question. It, if, if you think it's some other way than this here, if all we ever had, if we didn't have our, na our natural history museums, we didn't, have, we didn't have our discovery channels and our national geographics, we didn't have any of that. All we had, the only thing we had that it told us anything about history was this book. We would all agree on history. I'm serious. We would all agree on history. If this was all we had, <laughs> we would all agree. We wouldn't, we wouldn't 
I, I would not need to have this ministry. <laughs> I would not have the calling of the Lord to, to do this. But see, we have other stuff out there that we've, that's, that's, that, that's been packed away in here somewhere that tells us that this history can't be right. We've heard something. We've seen something. We've studied something. We, we majored in something in college that says this, this history that, Matt, you're, you're talking about this week with us? Like 6,000 years? Are you serious? That's it? That's what, I, that's what it says. So that's where I ride. And then I want to go out and see, is there, is there data? Is there, is there observational, testable, repeatable data that says that that can be supported? I hope to share in the next several nights, there's overwhelming. Overwhelming. That the top of that screen there, that order, there is no issues with. So let's get started. Chapter 1, Genesis. Pray with me. Lord, tonight in this place, I ask that you will use me. Lord, allow us to see you differently through your word. Lord, as our creator God, you made everything. Help us to understand how. Help us to understand and and see um, your hand in things that you've made. Lord, it's unmistakable. But sometimes we miss it because we don't expect you. Lord, I ask that, that tonight we, we see you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one. See, in, a, in an evolutionary understanding of how everything got here, the Big Bang suggests to us that everything came from nothing, and it did it all by itself. When the Big Bang Theory first came out in the, in the, in the 70s, Most of the scientific community did not like it because it says everything came from nothing but did it all on its own. It sounded too much like what? Well, like creation. That God created everything out of nothing. It took took a little bit before it kind of grabbed on, if you will, to folks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the Lord very much made everything out of nothing, but he didn't do it, he didn't let it, he didn't, he didn't do it without him. Without him. We have a creator. He identifies himself. As I mentioned this morning, and had you go to John chapter 1 this morning, Jesus is even identified as our creator. If we, go, if we go back over to Colossians, maybe I'll share that tomorrow night. You know the passage in Colossians chapter 1. It's an important passage. But see, tonight, I want us to focus first on three words in the first verse in all of Scripture. The word beginning, heavens, and earth. See, there's a verse over in Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says that there are two invisible qualities. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says there's two invisible qualities that we can clearly see. Now, either either the Apostle Paul is insane or does not understand the word invisible. Because he says, he says there's two qualities of the Lord that are invisible that we can clearly see. In the same sentence. (laughs) 
from things that have been made, it says. And then he gives us the two qualities. He says his divine nature and his eternal power. Those two qualities, he says, we can clearly see, even though they're invisible, we can clearly see them. So that, he says at the end of the verse, so that we are without excuse. Why would we be without excuse? So, we, so we're without excuse to know and understand who he is as our creator. So one of the, one of the two qualities is divine nature. It's interesting. So let's look at these three words here. It comes into play with these three words. See, in, in Romans, the divine nature, some translations translate that Greek there as his Godhead. What is his Godhead, church? What, how, how, what, is, what do we think of when we hear that? The Trinity, which is who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Three distinct pieces of the one God. They are not separate gods. They are one. Let me be utterly clear about that. So, we have this word, Rashith. If I said it correctly, I would spit all over this row over here. So, I will refrain. I will say it very English-fied. That's what I call it. Rashith. <laughs> It gets translated beginning. It can, be, it can be defined also as start of time. I shared this this morning. When he says in the beginning, clock started ticking in history. The word, the word heavens here, it's shamayim. It gets translated heavens. It can be translated as space or spaces of spaces even. And then this word, this word Aretz, it gets translated earth many times in the Old Testament. It can also be translated as matter or mass. Any of you that have studied science very long understand that our very existence, we can understand scientifically as three parts. Space, mass, and what? Time. What? So from a scientific point of view, observational point of view, our existence is made up of three pieces. Space, mass, and time. They're held what we call in a continuum. A.K.A. you cannot separate one from the other or you don't have an existence. We understand... Can I, can I, I need a volunteer. Mahomes, can I borrow you for a second? Come here for one second. <sighs> Glad they won today, or I wouldn't have had to come, had to come up here today. See, all right. So, does does what is your name, sir? Ethan. Ethan. Does everybody? Oh, I'm sorry. What? Easton. Everybody see Easton. This is his matter, his mass. We see it. Notice it's different than the space around him. What if the, his space and in his mass was all the same? Wouldn't be able to see him. How old are you, sir? Six. Six. In what? In time. See, everything about our existence. Space, mass, and time. Thank you, sir. What does he say he creates in the very first verse in all of Scripture? He creates time. He creates the space. And he creates mass. He creates matter. That matter very well could have been. I, I was studying with a Hebrew scholar back east one time. 
And, and this Hebrew scholar just happened to also be like a, a, a mechanical engineer. That's an odd, kind of maybe an odd combination, maybe a little. And he said, Matt, I, my engineering background says that when I read the Hebrew here in the first verse and into the second verse, when it says this, Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the, the Spirit of God was hovering. That word hovering is moving, fertilizing. That word gets translated many different ways in the Old Testament. Over the waters. Over that matter. He says, Here, here's what I can see in the, in the Hebrew that most people just miss because we don't study Hebrew. That, that matter he creates at the first moments of the first day very likely were, were individual protons, neutrons, or quarks, or whatever other piece of more finute detail as we, we spin atoms around 17-mile tunnels in Switzerland. We keep thinking we're going to find the most basic point of the Big Bang, and the problem is it shows more and more complexity. More and more pieces that are really important that are held together by a force in physics we call the strong force that we honestly have no clue about. You want to know my worldview about who the strong force is? Because the Word of God says He holds all things together. Mm. I, I really see here in the first moments of the first day of history, He creates all the protons and neutrons and electrons, and then... They're, they're empty. They're not complete yet. They're, they haven't been put together in, in, a, in a form that is finished yet. But then in verse 3, what does he say? By his word. Let there be... Okay, so that's what I... That's what I hear, okay? When I, when I read, let there be... Like, I hear. That's my, that's my, that's my youth pastor side, I guess. <laughs> I... I He infuses the creation. Wait, what was that other invisible quality that I said the Apostle Paul says is clearly seen? His Godhead and his what? His eternal power from things he made. This light that he creates, it's interesting. See, isn't it interesting as we think about the light, as, as, as God the Father, who is eternal, makes time, creates time, holds time, as we will study later, holds time, all of time in His hand, yet He comes to earth, puts on mass, and leaves us and says, I'm not leaving you alone, I'm going to come fill your space. His very nature is what he created space, mass, time. But then he creates this light thing. I don't know how long or how old I was when I realized that this is not the sun being spoken of here. I had that thought for years. Because what? What is the brightest, biggest light that we know anything about? <laughs> the sun. I mean, like that's the, the obvious, well, that's what he would have made here. But that is not what it says. It says he created light. The word light here is or. Everybody say that with me. Or. It, it can literally mean source light. 
because I believe at the moment he said light, it's like he turned on his glory and his power in a way that worked throughout creation. Every proton became what? Magnetized and positive. And we're going back to science class. <laughs> Neutrons, right? Get, they get connected. Every atom, boom, instantly. That's what, I, that's what I see happening here. From those, those pieces of matter, he is going to finish the rest of creation in the next several days. But that light that he puts in there, as is not the sun. It's his, it's his glory and his power. Why would I say? Because here's why I say that. Someday in eternity, in eternity, what does Revelation say will be our light source? Will we need the sun or the moon? Does it say? In chapters 21 and chapter 22, it says it twice in Revelation. We're no longer going to need the sun or the moon. Why? Because the one who sits on the throne, his glory will be our light. Church, I, I, I firmly believe with all that I am, that was day one light. That, that was day one light. He divides this light and dark And that light is his pure glory. Church, I, I, I know we'll see it again. We'll get to see day one light again. And what does he do? What's he do with it? He separates it. And then he says a very, well, wait, 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 before we get there. See, we study, we study in, in science this thing called the electromagnetic spectrum. Who remembers this? Who just likes just to study it? Anybody just studying it right now in science class? Electromagnetic spectrum. The wavelengths, right? Right? The wavelengths. All light has wavelengths, right? Some of them we see, right? All the middle we see. But then there's all these other wavelengths that we don't see. But we utilize all the time and we take it for granted, church. We use day one light and we never think about it. Let me, let me just show you a couple ideas here, right? Infrared. How many of you uh, turned on a TV with a remote control today? You used day one light. When he said, let there be light, he created that wavelength. That Nikolai Tesla figure out how to put into a little box that can control something across the room. Uh, we've understood that wavelength of light. Our military has the ability to see the enemy at night because of that wavelength of light. We, how many of us cooked some food today in the box in the kitchen? I tell students all the time, the light bulb that comes on is not cooking your food. It is not an easy bake oven. Okay? <laughs> There's a wavelength of, of light in there that you cannot see that is cooking your food. That light was created on day one when he said, let there be light. Uh, we use these wonderful little devices. Hello? They operate with day one light. And we never think about it. We, we listen to radio stations. That wavelength of light. If we go the other way, light gets more powerful the shorter it is. We get it so short, we can... We can X-ray, we can see our broken bones. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Dr. Demadian that several years ago created this very important device for us 
called the MRI machine. Who's had one? How important is that machine? I need you to understand tonight, in the, in the light of there are many out there that will try to teach you or share with you that you cannot, you cannot possibly understand and believe the history in this book and be a great scientist. Dr. Demadian believes everything that is in this book with all that he is. He believes the history of 6,000 years is correct, correct, and he is the inventor of the MRI machine. His love for day one of creation and understanding light, certain wavelengths, drove him to use it for something. So, I am not anti-science, as sometimes people say I am. Most times those folks never listen to what I actually have to say. I love science. I'm going to show you tomorrow night, the Word of God tells us we should do science. That's why many of the major laws we have that govern the universe and things were discovered by guys that believed in the Word of God. But we don't ever get taught that. So, as the wavelengths get more powerful, we've understood how how to generate power and stop world wars. With our understanding of day one light. And, and, and look what he says here when he finishes this light. Look with me. Verse 4. God saw that it was what? Good. We say this word good. And in our vocabulary, good is what? Good is like, Okay. Right? It could be better. It's not best. It's just, it's just good. So here's here's my here's my caution to you to try to put your own worldview into the scripture. Sometimes we can get in trouble. Like to say when the Lord uses the word good, he was just like, man, it was all right. I could have done better, I guess, but that's not what he means by that word. See, there was a time, there was a time in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 18, where, where this fellow comes to the Lord, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Does Jesus answer him? In, in, in pure Jesus fashion, he never answered. He always asked another question, right? <laughs> it's like his, wait, 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 wait. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. There is no one good except, he says, God alone. Is the Lord mediocre? Is God just kind of okay? No, he's perfect. He's perfect. He uses the word good and attaches it to God. So if God in the first day of history says something is good, guess what it means? It means perfect. Not going to get better. (laughs) It's perfect. Please hear that and see that when you read this word on these days. It is completed. It is finished. That part that he's creating is done. And so God God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I mentioned this morning about this, that this is one of the most asked things about, about what I believe. About what I, what I believe the Word says. 
I, I fervently believe that these days are days like we would understand them to be a day for multiple reasons. One, the word day in the Hebrew is yom. It can have multiple definitions in the Hebrew. It, it can mean a physical day like we think of a day. It can mean the daylight portion of a day. It can also mean a period of time, like in the day of my father. My father's days, okay? It can, it can mean that as well. And so when we're, when we're studying Hebrew, it's always about context. Context helps us understand which definition we should use. So we have the word yom here. We have the word yom, and in the context we have three very important words. We have evening, we have morning, and we have a number, one. Every time outside of Genesis chapter 1, when the word yom is used, and it has any of those identifiers, morning, evening, or a number attached to it, every time, every time, every time the word yom has morning or evening attached to it, or a number attached to it, it is always in reference to a day like we would understand a day. Never another option. In the, all, the entirety of the Old Testament. Here in the first day of history, it has all three references attached to that word. We would, if, we were, if, we were, if we were somebody that, that was, was one of God's children at that time, and one of his people, and they were reading through that, they would never have any other idea that it was anything other than a day. Why can I be so bold about that? Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. See, those that want to take a position where these days are not days and try to bring up 2 Peter chapter 3, of which we will deal with on Tuesday night, we will see 2 Peter chapter 3. The thousand years is like a, that one. Uh-huh. That you got rattling around back there. It will deal with that. On, it doesn't have anything to do with creation days. It has everything to do with the flood. We'll come back to that, okay? Look at what's in chapter 20 of Exodus, church. Ten Commandments. I'm going to ask the question. You can answer out loud if you'd like. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? God did. Very good. Nobody said Moses. That's good. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times I get Moses. Okay, so, <clears throat> so the Lord is writing in stone by his own finger, it says in Scripture, and in verse 11, it says this. Listen very closely. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So in his own finger, what does he say he did? Outside, if we leave, leave Genesis 1 over there by itself. <laughs> what does he say in his own finger he did? Six days. Rested on the seventh. Well, why would that be important? What is, he, what is he sharing with his people that are called by his name? <laughs> he, he's teaching them how to live. How to live, how, how to do life. And so he says, listen, your work week is going to be like the week that I started everything. I worked six days and then I rested. 
When we get to day four here in just a minute, you're going to understand there is nothing in the heavens, zero things, in, zero things in the heavens that control our week. Zero. There's nothing. There's nothing around us that says a, a, a week should be seven days. So the question has got to be brought up, well, why seven days? Because he said he did it that way. And it should work. Go check your history. Civilizations that have tried to make a week not seven days. I think the French several years ago tried to do a ten-day week. Guess what they're back to? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So in case... The finger of the Lord is not good enough. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 33 right quick. Because I mentioned something in connection with this idea this morning. See, this day thing is covenantally controlled. I said this morning, I say this morning, it's a promise. It's a promise from the Lord. So we got to go to Jeremiah. So use your index up front. This is when a phone gets handy. Because you can just jump over there to Jeremiah chapter 33. You know, most of us have never memorized where all the prophets are, and, and so we never go over there. So, Jeremiah chapter 33. Look at verse 19 and following. Talking about this, this, this idea of, of how long our days are, okay? And when a day became a day. The word of the Lord, it says in verse 19, chapter 33 of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. Whoa, what's that tell us about day and night? Is it just about us spinning on our axis with a light source? That's what he did, but it's not just about that. It says here he made a covenant about it. A promise. Now, let me read that again. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time. So there's an appointed time to both of those. Reasonably speaking, it's 12 and 12. Right? Depends on where you are on the planet. And if you like daylight savings time or not. Okay, so um, all those things we've tried to come up with to, like, mess with that. Right? Okay, okay so... so It's a covenant, and he set the times. By the way, the Lord Jesus, he said there were 12 hours in a day. He stated that in his words in the New Testament, (laughs) by the way, just in case you're curious about that. (laughs) Who better knew what the day was than him? Okay, so so here's the thing. He, He makes this covenant. Look at verse 21. If you can figure out how to break this covenant thing, Then verse 21 says this, Then my covenant with David my servant, or my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Who's the descendant to reign on David's throne, church? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus coming. So he relates to the people of Jeremiah's time. Listen, you guys aren't listening to me. You're not listening to me. You need to focus. If you can figure out how to mess up what I started, when did he start? Day and night. When does the first time in Scripture we see day and night? Day one. It it makes a pretty easy case that that's when he appointed the time and he set the covenant. He says, listen, if you can figure out how that doesn't work, like I 
I control it and govern it, then I'm not going to send Jesus. So when somebody asks me, Matt, why do you pound on the, the, the days of day thing so much? Because I believe the Word of God does. I mean, I could stand here and go, well, because it just says so, and, and I'd be okay with that too. But we don't have to, we were never asked to believe this with blind faith. Ever. The Word of God supports itself over and over again. So, we have a day. Day one. Pretty remarkable day. Starts all this stuff that he's going to complete. So, let, let's go to day two. Back to Genesis chapter one. Everybody good? God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from water. So God, God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So what did he do? He separated water from water. That's all we got. That's it. Like on my list, I don't know if you have that list. Do you have that list of stuff you're writing down that someday... Someday when you, get, when you get in his presence, you're like, okay, I got this list, right? <laughs> I mean, you know that's not going to matter, right? <laughs> okay, but, but I, I think we all have that list. I, on my list is, okay, more details on day two would have been really, really helpful. Like, that would have really helped a lot, okay? What we have is we have water being separated with an expanse in between. <laughs> that's what we got. Listen, there are... All kinds of ideas about what that means. I mean, it runs the gamut. I could be here the rest of my time just talking about day two and the thoughts that are out there. Honestly, we, I, we know we have an expanse between water above and water below. Whether that means he just created our atmosphere here around this ball that he calls Earth of water... Maybe the, the astrophysicist, Dr. Russ Humphreys, he proposed an idea a few years ago that some people laughed at, but the more I study it, the more I kind of like it. It's this model, he says, you know what, maybe, maybe this ball that was called Earth of Water on day two was really, really big, like immensely bigger than what present day Earth size is. And on day two, he separated some of that water from the water that would be left over as Earth, as we know Earth today, size-wise. And then he took all that water and he began stretching it out. And, and that space between that water and Earth is what we classify as the universe. He's an astrophysicist, guys. He's got all this stuff in his book that I don't understand. Like all this, like, numbers and letters together with things. I think it's called math, I think. And, 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 it, and it gets, it gets, whew. I mean, if you want to go there, go there, okay? I'm just saying, it's okay, you can go there. And if you can go there, hey, whoo! But you know what? Throughout the rest of Scripture, the Lord talks about stretching out the heavens 17 times in the Old Testament, that He stretched out the heavens. I mean, stuff fits with that idea. I go, huh. The more we study the universe, the more we lean towards it's most likely bounded. It has an edge to it, which also doesn't fit a Big Bang model. 
And, and, and the more we study, we realize that, you know what, as we observe the things in the heavens, we realize everything is moving generally away from us, which puts us where in the universe? The only place that everything moves away from you is in the middle. And you know what? The more we study what we're studying here in this chapter, it sure, it sure sounds like in the Word of God that the, the focus for all of creation is right here. Bounded universe. Maybe. Notice what word doesn't get used. What word is not present on day two? Huh? Good. Go back, check your text. He never says what he created on day two was good. It wasn't complete. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't done yet. Dr. Humphreys kind of leans that way. You know, he says, well, he stretched out that and made the space, but he didn't finish it and complete it until day four. Seems reasonable. So, let's go to day three. Pretty important. Day three is pretty important to you guys. Much more important than, I, than, than to me. I'll tell you why here in a second. So, it says this, and starting in verse 9 and following, it says, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, and he called them seas, and God saw that it was... Good. So, so the first part of day three is him out of the water, he creates a landmass. The, the Hebrew very much talks like it's a landmass, not how many do we have today? Seven landmasses or continental chunks. Okay. The Word of God in, on day three very much argues Alfred Wegener's very famous idea. That isn't it interesting how the continents, simil- they, they kind of fit, they're like a puzzle kind of thing, right? And that at some point in history, they might have split apart from each other. See, the observational data reality, observational, testable, repeatable, falsifiable, is the continents do, the layers of sediment do, do have grain to them on continents. And some of those, those layers of sediment are so large that the grain, when you put the continents back together... The grains all going the same way. Kind of leans towards probably all together at some point. Like he did on day three. We have no idea. Listen to me. Listen. No idea if Alfred Wegener and the idea of what our continents look like today, if we just squished them all back together, if that's what the landmass looked like. It could have been quite a bit larger. Could, could have been smaller. But the Word of God kind of suggests this idea that we think of as Pangea. I have no problem with that idea. The observational data, the science says, there's, there's, there's very obvious look like they have connected together from the rocks to everything. The worldview part that gets implemented into it is what? How long ago it happened. That's the worldview part. It's been argued that they separated, came back together, and separated again in an evolutionary worldview. Did we observe any of that? None of it. That's worldview. 
So we'll deal more with geology on Tuesday night. But then he does something on the land. He doesn't finish with just land on day three. He starts doing botany. Well, now see, here's the thing. In an evolutionary understanding taught in our biology textbooks in this country, when you come to the section on plants, it is taught that all plants had common ancestors with green algae. I mean, if I ask to see your biology textbook, I'll find it. Hadn't been one yet that I've found that doesn't have this in it. All plants started as green algae. And then over the course of time, with mutation helping, you have your soybeans and your wheat and your corn and our fruit trees and our... <laughs> that, that's the idea in, in an evolutionary worldview. Started as green algae in the water, they slowly, over time, by the time we got dry land, way later in the evolutionary worldview, we get land way later, and then by that time, the land dries out and becomes fertile enough that some of that green algae figures out how to mutate uh, right there near the, the coast first, and then it works its way and becomes your pecan tree. I mean, that's pretty simplified, but that's the gist. Can we read what he said he did? Let's, let's check this out. Starting verse 11 and following, he says this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various what? Kinds. That word kinds is... Genetics 101, according to the Word of God. <laughs> it's biology 101, according to the Word of God. He said he makes them all by their kinds. Then, then let's, let's continue. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was? It was good. It was completed. The entire botany kingdom was done. In the course of a day. We have no idea if he took like all day to do it. It could have taken 10 seconds. of the, the. But during day three, he finished the entire botany kingdom. I've been told, somebody that understands the whole agriculture thing, to, have, to go from maybe just rock to fertile topsoil to fully mature plants in a day would be supernatural. How much do we have to do to our fields these days to get them ready for seed? Do we have to, are you guys in an area where we have to like add a lot of stuff to the soil? I mean, yeah, I'm finding everywhere I go that it's becoming the norm. We've got to add stuff to the soil. Maybe less in Iowa-ish. Their dirt is like black. <laughs> Their dirt is way different. Anyway, so um, so we, went, we went from no plants to fully formed plants. Mature plants. Not just like seedlings. Notice it didn't say seedlings. It said fully mature plants. Fully mature trees. What, would, what did it say was on the trees? Fruit. That says fully mature what did it say twice was in the fruit already? <laughs> Woo! 
You know what that excites me? Because to me, that those two little portions of day three alone destroy an evolutionary worldview for me. That means, that means soybeans have always only made what? Soybeans. The seeds were there. The oranges will always only produce what? Orange. No way. Do we have varieties of oranges? Do we have varieties of soybeans? I have no idea. Do, okay. Stepping in, I gotta be careful. <laughs> I don't know nothing. Okay, so um Apples are there varieties of apples? Yeah. How oh, talk to me. Of apples. Varieties of apples. But they're all what? Apples. A lot of those, I've been told, my little study I've done on that, I've been told a lot of those, we have hybridized, we have picked certain traits, and then we've, we've put them together, if you will, pollinized and whatever, so we get that trait, whatever that trait is. Extra sweet, bigger, whatever. I've heard we do that a little bit in farming, too, once in a while. Right? So, here's the thing. Would it be a shock if you planted your wheat, Everybody done with planting wheat? Who's done? No? Oh, not yet. Okay. <laughs> Is it happening? Is it go it's going in now. Okay. So, so, would it shock you then, here in a few weeks, when it starts coming up, and it doesn't look like wheat, it looks more like corn? <laughs> would that be like a, would that, would that morning be a little different? <laughs> I'm going to argue that it would be a little different. <laughs> Now, see, we understand the only, listen to me, listen to me, the only scientific data reality, observing, testing, repeating, falsifying, that we have anywhere on the planet is that all plants produce their own kind. Only thing we've ever observed, we've ever tested, we've ever reproduced, we've, we've ever falsified. All of botany says day three is right. All of botany says day three is right. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we hear something out there that's like, well, but I don't know. When you boil it down, day three is right. And he made it good. It was done. It was complete. So let's go to the last day we're going to study. Please stand up. Stretch your legs. I'm going to ask for a few more minutes. I thought, for sure, I'll get through four days. That'll be easy. I should know better. I've been doing this long enough. See, day four is, is one of my favorite days. Obviously not my favorite day. Day six is my favorite day. But, but day four is, is a close second. In my worldview, I, I, I love studying things in the heavens. I have a, I, we, our ministry has been blessed several years ago with a pretty good sized telescope that I enjoy getting out and, and when the conditions are right and, and showing folks when I'm at camp in the summer. I'm at camps and I'm doing VBSs in the summer, showing students and adults just wonderful things in the heavens that he made on day four. So, so you may sit whenever you feel like it, okay? And let, let's look at. Let's look at day four. See, the things that are going to be made on day four, he refocuses out into the heavens. Off the surface for a second, and out into the heavens. You, you did catch, right? You caught, even though I didn't say it, plants 
begin doing photosynthesis, and we have no what yet? Sun. And we don't have sun. If you study photosynthesis long enough, you know it doesn't take the sun, it takes a light source. Do we have a light source on day three? Sure. The Lord started photosynthesis by his power and glory without the sun. Just in case we, we start thinking it's always about the sun and it's always going to be about the sun and we think there's nothing else in control. <laughs> the Lord did it in that order. <laughs> I think to remind us of who's actually in control. See, in an evolutionary worldview, what we're about to study on day four, in an evolutionary worldview, it says that in our solar system, the sun began first, first in our solar system. It was birthed like all stars are birthed. That a, that a cloud of hydrogen gas and maybe a few other gases will, will come together. What is the charge of hydrogen gas? Anybody that remembers? What's the charge of a hydrogen gas atom? Positive. What do positive things do when they come close to each other? Do they come together? No, they repel, right? But, but... It's argued that in, in the idea of a star formation and in our sun's formation at the birth of our solar system, that hydrogen gas was compressed and heated. What happens to gas that it, when it's heated? Does it continue to come together or what does it do? It wants to expand and go away. But let's leave, let's leave aside what we have observationally observed in science for a second. So a hydrogen gas is going to come together, positively charged ions are coming together under their own gravity, is argued, to heat itself to a million degrees without expanding away from itself. Heated to a million degrees and then the sun begins. The, then what happens following that, this is called the nebular hypothesis. The idea is from that star birthing itself, the leftover gas is shed out in waves. The leftover dust and rocks begin congealing together by the gravity of that sun, that star, begin congealing together and orbiting and becoming the inner planets that are terrestrial, that are rock. But the gas gets shed out and the gas begins coming together and forming gas giants further out in our solar system. That is the present, being taught, most used idea of how we have a solar system in an evolutionary worldview. How much of it is observable? The observable parts are we have a sun, we have a star. We have planets that orbit around that sun. We have terrestrial planets that are close, gas ones that are far. Well, no, let's not talk about Pluto. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> in an evolutionary worldview, all of our planets are just leftovers from a sun formation. We are leftovers in an evolutionary worldview. And one of those leftovers just so happened to be in the exact spot it needed to be for those organic compounds to spring into the first living single-cell organism that then multiplied through random mutation and natural selection, and then you are in here tonight. I get argued often to me that I'm the one that believes and has faith. The more I study, the more I see the amount of faith needed 
for an evolutionary worldview. We can observe things, church. We can observe things. But the data alone is not leading us to an evolutionary worldview. Our worldview leads us to the evolutionary worldview. So let's see what he does here. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Hmm, something's going to take over that, that covenant that he established on day one. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Those seasons are not seasons like fall, winter, summer. What's those seasons? What other seasons do we have? Months. That seasons is months. We could just translate that months. Days, years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the what? Everything he's about to make in all of the universe is light for who? (laughs) For us. I mean, I don't know how many times that I've I've studied that and and I've taught on that. And every time that blows my mind with what I'm about to show you. Verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. See, this word light, in our English translations, it looks a lot like the same word light over there on day one. Hello? Problem is, it's a different Hebrew word. And unless you get into the Hebrew, you'd never know it. This word here that gets translated light is ma'or. It means a holder or a container of source light or power or glory. He's literally telling us he's going to make holders of his light in the heavens. And he starts with the greater light. What's the greater light? Doesn't take long to figure that out. (laughs) It's this big burning ball of gas, right? I could go into over and over. I could show you. I could show you observational things that say it is so specifically designed. There is nothing happen chance about our sun. Anybody that tries to teach that it's some middle of the road, mediocre, just kind of plain old star. My my scientific term is hooey. That's hooey. That's crazy to me. Like it's placed at just the right distance away. 93 million miles. What if it's 125 million miles away? What happens? Yeah, we're done. Right? What's that important element? What's that important molecule on our planet that's really, really important we understand for life? Water. Like what are we looking for everywhere else in the universe? Hello? We're looking for water. Why are we looking for water? Because we understand how important water is. That little covalent bonded, that's a whole other lesson. I can't go there. That special little molecule that no, nowhere, nowhere in all of the universe have we found in all three states like we have it here. Nowhere. I'm not talking Missouri, Kansas, and... Oklahoma, I'm talking, you know, are you with me? <laughs> Solid, liquid, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, okay, just making sure. I said that some weird way, Bob knows, Bob was laughing, he's not in here, he's out looking. I said that, somehow I said that somewhere where I was, and everybody started giggling and talking. 
Whatever I said, I can't even remember now how I said the, how I said that. I can't even remember how I said it. And everybody's getting, and later it was like, oh yeah, because we were trying to figure out what only states that we have liquid water in. Um, anyways. This light holder that he put there, this greater light, governs that this planet has water in three states. And all three states are really important for life. I mean, if that sun is too far away, what happens to the water in your body? Yeah, you're free and we're done. What, what if he put it at, at 75 million miles away? Oh, now, and now we're boiled. We're done. We're Venus. Hello? Venus look like a great place to go vacation? No, it's 900 degrees on the surface. Oh, but we found life in the upper atmosphere. Oh, easy. Let me, let me just teach you something here real, real quick. When you hear a news article come out, when you hear a news article come out, listen, go find the original scientific study. Because whoever is writing the news article has put their worldview into the news article. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. So when that, when that hit, my email lit up just like three weeks ago. My email lit up, Matt, they found, they found life molecules on, on Venus. What do you think about it? I'm like, mm, my first, I hadn't heard about it yet. And I'm like, well, hang on. Let me go read the study. Guess what the study never says that we actually found? Life molecules in the upper. <laughs> it actually doesn't say that. It actually doesn't when you go find the scientific paper. Church, listen to me. Go find the scientific paper. Work your way through the scientific paper. Most times it's not near as exciting as what the news article or you heard on the news or whatever says it. We've got water on Mars! No, 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 no. We found the remnants of things that look like water on Mars. Greater light. He didn't make it too hot. Put it at the right distance, but then he didn't make it too, too massive. And he didn't make it too small. I mean, I mean, he made it just... Well, he made it good. He made it good. And then he said he, made, he makes what? What's he make next on day four? So at this point in history, we have earth, and we have the sun, and now he makes what? The lesser light, right? The lesser light. What is that? That's our moon. As I was corrected by a third grader at a camp here in Kansas in a dark field one time, one evening. We're standing on this dark field waiting for the International Space Station to come over. I was going to point it out to him. And I'm talking about Space Station, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and I, I said, and it's our largest satellite. And, and I could hear the hand in him going, ooh, Mr. Matt. And I'm like, Yes. You're wrong. That's all he said. And I went, oh, okay. What? Talk to me from the darkness. <laughs> he, said, he said, Mr. Matt, you're, you're, the moon is our largest satellite. I went, yeah, you're good. That's good. I like that. Like, you're, see, you know what that tells me? He's thinking. I like that. I like that a lot. The moon. You understand how special our moon is? See, I'm like, it's argued that, like, it's just the moon. No big deal. What's the moon do for us on the planet besides give us light at night? Moves our tides. Moves all that stuff that's really important for life. 
around the planet. Hello? What happens if our oceans quit moving? Guess what happens to life? Yeah, we cease. The largest oxygen-producing thing on the planet is the ocean. It is not the rainforest. Please don't misunderstand that statement and send me hate mail. So we can burn down the rainforest? It's not what I said. I'm just saying, we get in our brain that the rainforests are the most important thing for life on the planet. Not in the oxygen area. It's the ocean. And it's the movement of the tides because of that body that he placed on the fourth day in history. Put it roughly 240,000 miles away. He put it at just the right speed so it stays where it needs to stay. And then he put it in what we call a tidal lock. That is the side that only faces us, whether it's lit up or not. If you're, if you're out there and you're like, well, there's the dark side of the moon. Please understand, it's not dark when we have a new moon. It's lit up. I've, I've, I don't know how many people I've come across, they go, what? I never thought about that. It's true. Okay, um, go check it. Okay, so, so we set forth back in the 60s to go to the moon. We went to the moon. Now, I don't know, you know, the more I travel, I, I come across folks that, that want to argue this point with me. And that's fine. You're, you're entitled to your opinion. But all of the data, observational and, listen to me, repeatable data, says we've been to the moon. We, we had gentlemen that some of them gave their lives to go. Doesn't seem like something somebody would fake. They gave their lives. Uh, Apollo 11 landed right there. This is the Sea of Tranquility that we hear about all the time. Last year we celebrated the 50th anniversary. The night before Neil and Buzz and, and, and they went up, uh, Buzz had a special communion service with his family at his church. And then he asked, can I take some of those emblems that we, I shared with my family, can, I, can they go with me? Can I take some of them and, and take them in my personal effects as I, as I go to the, to the moon? Because I would like to take communion on the moon. Guess what doesn't get taught often? That, that this fella here, Buzz Aldrin, was a brother in Christ. I mean, like on the moon, he, 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 he took communion. So, again, we're taught often that if you believe in the Word of God and you're a Christian, you can't do science. That is, that is total false. There have only been 12 people, 12 men to ever step foot on the moon. That is a pretty elite group. So we, we, we got... 12 went down there. What happened to 13? They got to orbit. Come home. They did not make it. 14 landed there. 15 there. 15 is one of those that I really, really enjoy reading about. Because there was an astronaut there on that mission by the name of Jim Irwin. Here's a, here's a shot of him. Not only do I like studying about Jim, it, it's also I'm jealous because they were the ones that got to drive the car on the moon first. 
Jim writes in a book, he said, God has always been real to me in my life. But he said, never more real or awesome than when I was, when I was standing on the moon. When, when I put up my gloved hand in front of my face and my thumb blocked out my whole entire home planet from view. He said, God became very awesome to me. See, what a lot of people don't know is that Jim Irwin was a biblical creationist that believes everything that I'm studying with you this week. He's a young earth, believes in the history as it's written in here, and he was one of the gentlemen that stepped foot on the moon. A lot of people don't know that about Jim. Drove a car on the moon. Okay, so 15. And then there was 16 and 17. And then they say we lost interest, so we never went back. We had 18 planned, and we didn't, we didn't do it. But see, we went there. Guys, if you don't think we're going back, we are going back. I very much believe we'll be there within the next 10 years, if not sooner. If Elon Musk has anything to do with it, we will be there sooner. When he says something, he does it. And I'm, I'm not doubting him when he says he's going to get to the moon. And then to Mars. Their plan, in my estimation, SpaceX's plan for Mars is the better plan. Right now. But either way, we've been there. I, I, there there's a little device. When I went to Washington, D.C. a few years ago, I, went to, I wanted to go there in Space Museum. Not just to see the Wright Brothers plane and you know, all the other really cool stuff there. Uh, because I'm a space nerd. Um, but I wanted to get a picture of this device. This is our practice device. It's in the Air and Space Museum. It's called the LAR. It's the Lunar Ranging Retro Reflector. It's about yay big, and it's a series of 50 mirrors in this little device that Apollo 11, 14, and 15 placed on the surface of the moon. Last year, when, they were, when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary, I'm watching, I think I watched all of them, all the specials, and, and, and I'm watching one that CNN was putting on, and they were simultaneously putting the footage together of Mission Control and the moon all at the same time, so you could see simultaneously what was happening. It was really cool. And at one point, Neil Armstrong, he says over the radio, and I was in Ohio doing a VBS, and my wife and I, we were, one afternoon we had free, and we were watching this on, on TV at the little, little place we were staying. And, and, and I hear Neil say, I've placed the LAR, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got it aligned correctly. And I am screaming at the TV, Honey! Did he just put it down? I'd never seen that footage before. He placed the LAR, and he stated in the video... I have it aligned. Well, why would that be important? Because the repeating observational experiment that goes on to this day, we shoot very powerful lasers from, I believe, five places on the planet to the moon, to those devices. And when the laser hits that device, it comes back to the exact location that it was shot from. And we immediately know, within fractions of an inch, how far away the moon is. Wow. Fractions of an inch. Fractions. See, we have had this ongoing thought that maybe the moon was in recession. It was moving away from us. This ongoing experiment 
repeatable, testable, verifiable experiment shows that it is. It's leaving us. And before you stress too much, it is literally moving about that far away every year. Inch and a half to two a year. If the moon was made from an evolutionary worldview roughly four billion years ago, and it's been moving away from us at a designated pace for all that time, guess what we really shouldn't have? But now wait a minute. If this history is right... And it's been receding from us at inch and a half to two a year for roughly 6,000 years. If you want to go to the 10,000, that's fine. That The Septuagint argues, the Greek Old Testament, it's moved 750 feet. It's still right where it needs to be to do what the Lord designed the lesser light to do. This experiment shows me several things. One, we've been to the moon. Two, two, this history's right, church. And then I want to finish this evening with the next statement on day four. <laughs> the understatement of Scripture. Wait, check it out. Wait, so, so wait, verse 16 was, God made two great lights, great light to govern the day, lesser light to govern the night. Then the next sentence. He also made the stars. That is everything else besides the sun and the moon in the entire universe. I spend a whole message just on this part. Please don't think I'm about to share that. <laughs> he makes all the rest of our planets in our, in our solar system. He, he makes in our galaxy, he makes globular clusters. These are balls of stars that are, that are light years across. This specific one is the, the great cluster of Hercules as seen by Hubble. It has been counted to have millions of stars in it. And then I read in scripture like, like Isaiah chapter 40 and it says that, that he placed them all and he knows them all by name. This is one of numerous globular clusters. That's not Sarah, that's balls of stars. And then he, Psalm 19.1 says, We look to the heavens and we see his handiwork, his artwork, the nebula, beautiful gas clouds. And, and we, be, we look beyond our galaxy to our neighboring galaxy named Andromeda, 2.3 million light years away. And we can go further than that to, to, to 23 million light years away. And, and our telescope, our ministry telescope, was able to capture this image of it one night at a camp in Missouri. So our 16-inch telescope that's six and a half feet tall takes this image. This is what Hubble sees. It's a little better. Hubble's 10 feet across, okay? And it doesn't have atmosphere and dirt and dust and, okay... That's not bad. It's, that's better. Okay, so the middle of the Whirlpool Galaxy several years ago, the Hubble took this shot. NASA calls it the X factor. Guys, listen, I haven't, 
I haven't photoshopped that. I have not twisted it. I have not rotated it. You can go download the exact same image. HubbleSite.org. Maybe if we took another picture in the middle of the Whirlpool Galaxy, it wouldn't look like that right now. But that moment, we took a $2 billion satellite telescope that is supposed to prove the beginning of the Big Bang, and it's not doing that. It's overwhelmingly showing us that there's complexity upon complexity all the way out. Just as if it was created. Like the Lord said he did on day four. This image here, as I close tonight, hold this. Hold a dime-sized hole in your hand up at arm's length to the night, okay? How much of the sky are you, are you looking at? I mean, in the scheme of the entire sky, how much we... Not a whole lot, right? I mean, like, okay. Hubble, in this image, can we kill lights? How, how controllable are lights? Can we kill them for a moment? I want everybody to be able to see this image, in case you haven't seen this before. This is the ultra-deep field image of Hubble. In this image, you will see all these points of light. They, they very much look like stars, and, and a few of them are. This is a star in our galaxy, and then there's like four or five other stars that are actually in our galaxy. They have refracting lines on them. The little star pattern, those are, those are in our galaxy, okay? So we're looking through those stars. The rest of these stars that appear to be stars are actually galaxies. They've been counted in this one image over 10,000 galaxies. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it says that the waters are in the hollow of his hand. Where are the waters that we've observed in the entire universe? Earth. So that means earth is in the hollow, in the middle of his hand. And then he says in in verse 12 of chapter 40, he says, Then the rest of creation is the breadth of his hand. So the entire rest of everything he made is in the width of his hand. It can make you feel pretty puny at this moment. Or, as he states over and over again on day four, he created all that out there to produce light where? It can make you feel very, very special because on this planet, he chose to create life in his image and here only. In the vastness of that, we can zoom in. We can zoom in. We can fly through space. We've taken the red shifts from all these galaxies and we've made a little, NASA made a video. It's shown down at Kennedy. I mean, it's amazing how vast it is. Yet there's nothing outside of who he is. There's nothing outside of his control. If you've come in here tonight and this week and you think there's something in your life that you cannot give over to God... Do you honestly believe he's too small? Do you honestly believe that he's he's not powerful enough to take it? See, what I find is, is that Satan, Satan messes with our worldview to make us think that God is much smaller than he really is. That he can't do what he says over and over again in scripture that he actually does. We, we compartmentalize him. Lights, please. We compartmentalize him into the God of ancient history and not now. 
if you think you've had a bad day and he's not big enough to take care of it, he, he holds all of creation right here. <laughs> not near as big a bad day as you think it is. When, when, you, think, when you think politics hasn't, hasn't gone your way, who's still in control? See, it, it, anything and everything in our life, the things that you think are out of control, guess who can bring them in control? Your creator, the one who made the heavens and all those stars and he, and he, and he acts like that's an afterthought. Because you're the focus. We're the ones he's getting ready for and tomorrow night we focus there. Probably differently than you maybe have ever studied it before, days five and day six. I hope you come back because I want you to know your creator in a different way. I want you to know he, he wants to spend every moment with you. He wants to hear all of your thoughts. He wants to hear, hear all of your questions. He, want, he wants to know everything about you. And he doesn't ask you to fix it first to come to him. He says, come to me messy. I'll take care of you. Pray with me. Lord, tonight in this place, I... Oh. Lord, every time I have the, the privilege to be able to share your word, Lord, I, I'm overwhelmed myself at the awesomeness of you, my creator. Lord, I ask that tonight in this place that all of these that are here, that, that their, their minds have, have heard and read your word, but that, that their hearts are feeling you. Lord, you designed us. We will see that beyond a shadow of a doubt tomorrow evening. But Lord, tonight, the things that he has already made in the first four days scream to us that you are there and that you made them. There's too many design features to miss. From plants to, to molecules to, <laughs> to all the stars, stuff in the heavens. Lord, they all point to you as our creator. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for leaving your fingerprints places. Lord, I thank you for great astronauts and scientists that have pointed that way to us for years. Sometimes we just miss them. Lord, I thank you for them. Lord, tonight we, we lift our praises and our, and our honor and glory to you, our creator and savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Well, Matt touched on it a little bit about the importance of communion, and uh, as it's a Sunday, we like to offer that opportunity to anybody who wasn't able to be here at service this morning to take communion with us. So we'll have our men come forward. They're going to give you a meditation to kind of get us in the mindsetting of just what God did for us on that cross and why we can have salvation in Jesus. So we'll have Paul and I believe the Pauls come forward. It's just a special time when we come to the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord himself invited us. The Lord himself established it and give us the symbols, the bread and the cup. And he says, come in remembrance. Doug gives such a powerful yet plain example this morning at the table of how easily 
we forget. But you know, as we look at the scripture, and I'll be reading out of Romans, I just want us to come in remembrance of the new relationship that we have with the Lord when we accept him as our Savior. In Romans 6, it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. He talks about being baptized or identified with Christ. Uh, it, it is a, a special time. What it is, it's a picture of our new state, and we want people and we want the world to see it. When we trust in Jesus, our Savior, and, and we go through baptism, uh, we are united with him in his death. And as we come to this Lord's table, we want to remember that. Uh, but also, it says we have this newness of life. That also, as we were united in his death, we're also united in his resurrection. And you get to, to come to remembrance that you have a new kind of life. Uh, and it's a life that is victorious. One that has given us eternal life. It says the old man crucified. Simply put, we are not the same person. The new, we are a new creation in Christ. We're no longer slaves of sin, but we have been freed. We have been forgiven. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the hope of eternity. It is amazing when we think of these symbols that uh, we'll be passing around here in a minute, the bread and the cup and what they represent. Uh, these symbols, the bread represents Jesus' life here on earth. God's Son came here to make a sacrifice for me and for you. The only sacrifice that God would accept. He even made that sacrifice on the cross. And yet if we partake of this cup, we come in remembrance of the blood that he gave every ounce of his blood and it washed away our sins. It made us right with God. And as we partake and remember this deal, we want to remember the new covenant that we have with Christ. And, and we do so in a way that uh, we realize that we have a responsibility uh, to keep that remembrance during the week and during the months ahead. Shall we pray? Dear God, I just thank you so much for this time that you set aside in our service that we can, we can come before you and be thankful of the of the sacrifice that has been made for us, that we could have eternal life and the assurance that we'll, uh, we'll spend eternity in you and, and with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.